can open your Bibles to Galatians, Galatians 4. Let me read the first seven verses for you. Galatians 4, 1 through 7. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and stewards until the day set by the Father. So also we, while we were children, were enslaved under the elemental things of the world. When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Yesterday I I watched a video of of a nine-year-old boy named Jordan. He was featured in a local news story, and, and Jordan wanted to be adopted. He was uh, in foster care for years. He was looking for a, a family to belong to. He had a younger brother who had been adopted a couple years earlier, but that family chose not to adopt Jordan. And in the interview, the boy said, yeah, I, just, I just want a mom. I want a, I want a dad. I, 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 even a mom. I, I don't care. And then the social worker was interviewed and he kind of gave a, a kind of a more sober reality about Jordan's situation. And he said that in the past, when prospective parents were interested in, in adopting Jordan, they were, they were reluctant to move forward when full disclosure about his case was presented to them. And, and that's not uncommon. Young boys and girls who have grown up in the worst of situations, they have many issues and problems and, and, and prospective adoptive parents uh, don't want to deal with that, and, and I, that's understandable, and, and we get that, and, and that's incredibly sad. Today, we're going to, on that note, we're going to learn about our, our own adoption story, um, from grief to joy, and in case you didn't know, that, that believers are adopted children too, as we'll see in this passage, and so in today's passage, we're going to consider the, the great glory of God adopting rebel children into his very own family. And and as most of you well know, Paul has been defending the gospel in the book of Galatians. Early in in Paul's gospel ministry, he and Barnabas had planted churches in southern Galatia during their first missionary journey. You can read about it after after a church today in Acts 13 and 14. And, And shortly after Paul left Galatia, however, false teachers had infiltrated those same Galatian churches and were teaching a false gospel. They, they were teaching that salvation started with faith in Christ, uh, but you needed something more to complete your salvation, and that something more was the Mosaic Law. Their false gospel mixed together faith in Christ and works of the law. The works of the law included circumcision, keeping Old Testament dietary restrictions, observing the Sabbath, and obeying the rest of the moral commands of the law. In other words, if you wanted to go to heaven, you you needed to believe in Christ, and you also had to become Jewish. You had to believe in Christ, and you also had to become a son of Abraham, falsely defined and understood. And so Paul begins defending the gospel in chapters 1 and 2. He gives an autobiography of his life and ministry in order to prove that his gospel was an impeccable gospel, it was an original gospel directly received by Christ on the road to Damascus. He was, he was writing to, to prove that he had undeniable credentials as an apostle. There was authority there, but that he wasn't a false teacher. He wasn't a false teacher as the, the Galatian false teachers were saying. In the second half of chapter 2, Paul made, a clear, made it very clear that to be right with God is by faith alone and not by the works of the law. You, you can't mix the two d- together. They are unmixable. And furthermore, he, he, he clarified that justification happens in our union with Christ. And once a person is made one with Christ, he then dies to the law. In chapter 3, Paul, in a, a theological tsunami, uh, corrects the 
Jewish misconception of what defines the son of Abraham. It is not circumcision, it is faith. And the promise made to Abraham was ma wasn't made to Jews only, it was also given to Gentiles. But Paul, what about Moses and the law? Well, you're forgetting someone, you're, you're forgetting something. And so finally from chapter 3, verse 15 to the end of the chapter, Paul argued the limited and temporary duration of the Mosaic law. He began that section by asserting the priority and the prominence of the Abrahamic covenant over against the subsidiary nature of the law. And therefore, the latter cannot cancel out the stipulations of the former. The law was intended to be enforced only until Christ came. The law functioned as a, a babysitter, as a, as a harsh custodian even, until the promise of righteousness by faith in Christ arrived on the scene. Believers, therefore, are no longer under the law because they are now God's sons. Whether you're a man or a woman, you are God's son. You, God's son in Christ, you, you're part of his sonship, you're, you're united to him by faith. In Galatians 4, 1 through 7, is an elaboration of the second half of chapter 3. It is an elaboration of the second half of chapter 3. Uh, the, these first seven verses in Galatians 4 restates from another angle the content of the second half of Galatians 3. Only this time, Paul highlights the dignity and privilege it is to be a member of God's family. It is so wonderful, it is so wonderful, it is so incredible, it is the highest privilege to be a member of God's family. And this is what Paul wants to convince us of, convince us of in these first seven verses of chapter four. He begins in verse one. In order to appreciate who you are now, you have to remember who you used to be. Verse 1 and 2 says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and stewards until the date set by the father. Paul in verses 1 and 2 reminds us of our spiritual past through an analogy of growing up in a first century household in the Roman Empire. According to Hellenistic law, when a father died while his children were young, the guardians and trustees were appointed to raise the child until a date set by the father. And when the date that was set by the father came to be, the child would now be free to live on his own. In cases of adoption, adopted children had in some ways a better condition in status than that of natural children. The adopted child was treated as if he had the same blood as the natural family. There was no legal difference. The father in Hellenistic law and custom who had adopted the son could not repudiate his adopted son. He could not change his mind. He could not sell him into slavery. And furthermore, adoption established the right of the adopted child to inherit his father's wealth. This custom is in the background of these first seven verses of chapter 4. So in Paul's illustration, you have an heir of the family fortune, but as long as he's a child, Paul says in verses 1 and 2, he's treated like a slave. Even though he's an heir, even though he's owner of everything, the way he is treated does not differ at all from a slave. Back in chapter 3, Words like inheritance and heir were used to refer to the blessings of the Abrahamic promise, and Paul expounds on that idea here. In the second half of chapter 3, Paul explained that the law prepared God's people for the fulfillment of the promise. The law was temporary. The law was inferior. Paul compared the law to a prison. The law shut up everyone under sin, he said. Uh, Paul compared the law to a, a harsh uh, Roman tutor, custodian, babysitter, teaching children what was right and wrong, punishing them when they, when they broke the rules. And so the Judaizers' natural response at this point would be, okay, Paul, 
answer me this question. Why would God use the law in such a way to the very heirs of the promise? Why would God use the law? If we look at the history of Israel, why would he use it in such a devastating way toward his very own covenant people? To his people he made these incredible promises to through Abraham. Why would God treat his people like slaves under the law when they were heirs? When they were heirs of this great fortune. And so Paul answers this hypothetical objection through an illustration from real life in verses 1 and 2. See, in, in real life, you can be the heir of, a, of, a, of, of, a, of great wealth, but as a child, until you become adult, you're going to be treated like a slave in many ways. See, my children are, are kind of like slaves in the sense that every decision is made for them. Uh, every aspect, what they eat, what they wear, what they do, the time they go to bed, and when they disobey our rules, there are consequences. When Paul goes to school, it's the same deal. He's not under first century Hellenistic guardians and stewards, but he's under teachers and, and teaching assistants and principals. Paul might, my son might grow up to be the president one day, and all those same people will have to tremble when they visit him. But for now, when he's told to stop sticking gummy worms up his nose, he has to obey the law like a slave. And Paul's point is that if it's, if it's possible to be an heir and still be treated like a child and, and even a slave in the real world, then it shouldn't be that difficult to understand, spiritually speaking, how heirs of a great promise can also be treated like slaves under the law. Paul in verses 1 and 2 says this is not that hard to comprehend. So Paul, in verse 3, applies the illustration of verses 1 and 2 to, to, the verse in, to the content of verse 3. In the same way heirs were treated like slaves in the Roman Empire, so also we, verse 3, while we were children, we were enslaved under the elemental things of the world. In our spiritual in infancy, we were enslaved under, under the elemental things of the world. Before Christ came, the period known that was once referred to as B.C. has so far in this book been described as being under the law, under sin, under a tutor, under guardians and stewards. And now in verse 3, Paul uses the term uh, under the elemental things of the world to describe the same age uh, the same period of God's salvation plan, the same era, the same dispensation before Christ came. And the, and the, term, the term elemental things was used to literally mean to place uh, things side by side in a row. It's used of the letters of the alphabet, alphabet uh, the ABCs, because the learning of the ABCs was the first le lesson in a literary education. The term came to mean rudiments or first principles. Here Paul uses the term to refer to the fundamental or elementary principles or the basic teachings of the world. In other words, the law for Israel, it, it was the ABCs in the religion of the gospel. In order to understand the Shakespeare of grace, you must first learn the ABCs of the law. Before you can appreciate the riches of mercy, you must first learn how to count up all your sins. The standard of the law and all the curses uh, thereby were intended to teach God's people that this is what it is like trying to live your life apart from God's grace. And so you need something more than just a law. You need a promise. The law was like a flannel graph used to teach God's people that promise was greater than law. The law was a coloring book full of pictures about Jesus. You see, the, the sacrifice of, of lambs and goats, they were, they were mere elementary principles. 
the lambs were sacrificed to teach you about a greater lamb, the lamb of, of the God-man. You see, the tabernacle in the Old Testament, that was elementary education to compare to what it was pointing to, the kingdom of God, Eden on earth. You see, clean and unclean laws about what you could, what you could eat or what you couldn't eat, they were, the, they were the, the ABCs of learning about a holy God. You see, leprosy laws, skin conditions, that was a mere Sesame Street show that was supposed to teach you about the incurability of the, the leprosy of sin. For us Gentiles here, we were enslaved under the elemental things of the world too, in the form of, a, of consciences, in, for, in the form of a law written on our hearts. We didn't have the Ten Commandments, we didn't have Moses, but we had a conscience. We, we, we had a basic understanding of right and wrong, but could we even keep our own personal standards? No, we, we knew the right thing to do, but we, we, we didn't do it. You know, I knew that I needed to be kind to people, but I was cruel instead. I knew in my heart when I needed to speak the truth, but I lied. I knew that in my heart that I, I knew I needed to cry for others, weep for others' pain, but instead I, I, I laughed at them. I knew when I needed to persevere, but instead I gave up. You see, the purpose of the law of our conscience was to help us see how much we needed a Savior. But what did we do instead for so long of a time? We justified ourselves by doing good in order to make up for all the bad that we did. We justified ourselves by blaming others. We, we justified ourselves by minimizing our broken standards. And what good did all that do? Even though we were heirs waiting to be saved, all the God-ordained penalties for breaking the law written on our hearts, they beat us down, they broke us. We were like slaves. They filled us with guilt and anguish. We were future heirs of salvation, and yet we were be being treated as if we were slaves, even though we were, we were heirs. See, all the sin and the violence and the curse and the death and the brokenness and the hopelessness we see fill the pages of the Old Testament in the life of the nation of Israel, that was just a microcosm of the entire world. All the nations of the world were in the, were in the same boat as Israel in the Old Testament. The, the history of Israel in the Old Testament is a, a history of the entire world. There were thousands of King Davids who murdered their soldiers to sleep with their wives. And they were all punished by God for it. The whole world was enslaved under the elemental things of the world, both, both Jew and Gentile, but... Verse 4 and 5. When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. The metaphor of growing up, the metaphor of, of the maturity of a child that would be set free from his guardians, from his father, at a particular date is put into real terms in verses 4 and 5. When, when we grew up, God sent forth his son. And, and, and Paul calls this, this monumental turning point in history, he describes it with the term the fullness of time. When the fullness of time came. When children who were slaves, when they reached their maturity, in Ephesians 1.10, Paul, describing the same era, says, For an administration of the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heaven and things on the earth in him. Jesus said it this way in Mark 1.15, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus says, It's here. The date set by the Father. It's arrived. Paul tells us more about this fullness of time in verse 4, when he sent his son. When he sent his son, he was born of a woman. The eternal Son of God took on human flesh. The second person of the Trinity became a, a real human being in order to die for sinful man, in order to be the perfect substitute for humanity. It, you, it, the replacement could have, couldn't be a goat, couldn't be a, uh, it couldn't be cattle. No, it had to be a real man for real sinners. 
he had to die the same human death humans die. Only a man could take the place of other men in order to take away their sin. But not just any man. He was born of a woman, and he was born, verse 4, under the law. He was born under the law like we were all born under the law, but not like we were born under the law. Yes, the perfect standard of God's commandments applied to the, to, to the Lord Jesus, but he kept the standard perfectly. Jesus was born under the law to offer a perfect obedience to the Father on behalf of those under the law. But he also bore the curse of the law in our place, a curse we had incurred by our failure to keep the law. Jesus filled, fulfilled the requirements of the law in his life as our representative and... He bore the curse of the law in his death on the cross as our substitutionary sacrifice. There were two results in the coming of the fullness of time. There were two purposes for which God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And they're given in, in verse 5. So that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons death of Christ, his resurrection, accomplished two things on our behalf. First, God redeemed us who, who, who were slaves under the law. He liberated us from the chains of the law through a payment of a high price. What was the price that was paid? The Son of God's death. Earlier in Galatians 3.13, Paul made that clear. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. But it didn't stop there. It's one thing to be set free from the penalty and power of sin, but God took it one large step further. Verse 5 says that he received, that we might receive the adoption as sons. There are two purpose clauses in verse 5. The second purpose clause expounds on the first purpose clause. God redeemed us from those who were under the law so that he could adopt us as sons. You see, when you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, God justifies you. On the basis of Christ's righteousness imputed to your account, God issues a legal declaration of not guilty to anyone who believes in his son. And so by faith alone, your sins are forgiven. Not one sin can ever be used against you as a basis for a condemnation, a condemnation you deserve. And we receive this legal pardon at the beginning of our salvation. And it's a divine pardon that we can never, ever lose. In verse 5, Paul now says that when you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, not only are you justified, God adopts you into his very family. You become a member of God's own family in heaven with all the rights and privileges thereof. Theologian John Murray described this doctrine of adoption as, quote, surely the apex of grace and privilege. The great Puritan William Perkins said that believers should esteem their adoption as God's children to be greater than being, quote, the child or heir of any earthly prince since the son of the greatest earthly king may be a child of wrath. The child of God by grace has Jesus Christ to be his eldest brother with whom he is fellow heir in heaven. He has the Holy Ghost also for his comforter and the kingdom of heaven for his everlasting inheritance, end quote. Perkins often lamented how few people realize their adoption in a, in a personal and in an experiential way. Perkins said, At earthly rewards and privileges, men will stand amazed, but seldom shall you find a man that is ravished, ravished with joy in this, that he is a child of God. Like you meet somebody from some prestigious family, if somebody from some famous family walked in, we would, we would stand in, in awe of them. We would look at them. We might introduce ourselves. We might ask to, to take a selfie with them. But few of us realize just 
how amazing and how great it is to be a child of God's family. What is adoption? What is this adoption that Paul refers to in verse 5? Well, let's begin with what it is not. Number one, adoption is not regeneration. Re adoption is not regeneration. It's, it's not difficult to, to, to confuse these two uh, realities as being one reality since in regeneration indeed you are born from above uh, and adoption at first glance seems like another way of describing the new birth of regeneration but regeneration and, and adoption they deal with two different problems adoption deals with our status adoption takes us from alienation to cherished children regeneration deals with our nature Regeneration changes us from God-haters God to lovers of the Heavenly Father. Uh, regeneration uh, makes us partakers of the divine nature. Adoption makes us partakers of the divine affections. Regeneration affects our nature. Adoption affects our relationships. Uh, number two, adoption is not justification. Uh, adoption is not justification. Uh, justification is indeed the primary, it is the fundamental blessing of the gospel. Uh, justification meets our most basic spiritual need, which is reconciliation with, which, with, with God, which is forgiveness. We could never be adopted without justification. But as great and as fundamental a blessing justification is, adoption, listen to me, is a richer blessing. It's a richer blessing because it brings us from the courtroom into the family. Jer Jeremiah Burroughs describes the distinction this way. Justification is, is conceived in terms of law, adoption in terms of love. Justification sees God as judge, adoption sees God as father. Number three, number three, adoption is not sanctification. The sanctification or, or our spiritual growth, that comes out of the reality of adoption. That comes out of the, the reality of being sons of God. Uh, through sanctification, we are brought into this, this further experiential awareness of our adoption. And as we become like our Father, we grasp more fully what adoption is. We live out the wonders of adoption. So we know what adoption isn't, but what is adoption exactly? John Murray succinctly defines it this way. Adoption is the act of transfer from an alien family into the family of God himself. The Westminster Confession of Faith gives a more comprehensive definition, and have it up there. You can read along with me. All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, and are, and are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. It's a lot of theology to absorb in 10 seconds. When the Apostle John pondered the truth of his adoption, when the Apostle John reflected on the experience of being a son of God, he, he said in 1 John 3, 1, See how great a love the Father has given to us that we would be called children of God. We are. It is certainly true that God is our creator. He is our judge. He is our Lord and he is our master, our teacher, our provider, our protector. He is the one who providentially cares for us. He sustains our existence. But listen to me. It is God as Father that becomes the primary way we relate to God. We relate to God not as a judge. We, we relate to God not as, a, as, a, as, as primarily a provider, a master, a lord. We relate primarily to him as a father. 
That's why Jesus said, when you pray, you pray like this, Heavenly Father. Yes, God is all those things, but the role that is most intimate, the role that conveys the highest privilege of fellowship with God for eternity is God's role as our Heavenly Father. If God is your Father, brothers and sisters, there's no doubt that He loves you. If sinful human fathers can love their children, how much greater is the love of God the Father toward His children? Jesus said that in effect when He said in Matthew 7:11, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? He's saying if if simple fathers know how to love their kids, then how much more does our Heavenly Father know how to love us? The experience our Father's love when He fills our hearts with joy in the midst of, in, of the most incredible trials. We experience the love of Father when we, when in, the, in the midst of chaos, in the situation that's breaking down, he, he floods our hearts with peace. I mean, I don't know about you, but it's in the moments when I feel life is the most hopeless. It, it's, in the, and it's in the times when I feel like everything's falling apart and, and my life is in shambles. It's then when God fills my heart with just joy and love and peace. This is the love of the Father for us. How precious is the love of the Father for his children. Jeremiah uh, wrote this. Next slide. He said, God, who is the infinite, glorious first being, embraces them, his children, with an entire fatherly love. All the love that ever was in any parents toward their children is but as one drop of the infinite ocean of fatherly love that there is in God unto his people. Do you know God as Father? Do you know the love of God as your Father? Do you love him that way? Do you speak to him that way? Do you call out to him that way? Do you trust him that way? If this omniscient, omniscient God is our Father, then that means He shepherds you according to His perfect knowledge of who you are. That your Heavenly Father knows you like no one else. Psalm 103, 13 and 14 says, As a father has compassion on his children, so Yahweh has compassion on those who fear Him. For He Himself, He knows our form. He remembers that we are but dust. You see, as a father to my children, uh, one of the challenges is, is trying to uh, grow in my understanding and my knowledge of them uh, daily. I, I, in a sense, I have to relearn my kids because they're always changing. They're, they're always becoming something, someone that they were not. Sometimes I'll think, well, well my son, he, he never does this, and one day, he, 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 all of a sudden, I see these new sins, these new uh, liabilities and defects, these new graces, these new wonders. So every day I'm relearning. I'm relearning. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to learn who my kids are. But I often fail to shepherd them correctly because it's oftentimes I'm always behind the curve. I think I'm ministering to the kid that I knew yesterday, but he's different today. And so I fail in that regard. But our Father never has that problem. He understands you better than you understand yourself. He, he, he ministers to you. He shepherds you. He loves you according to this perfect knowledge of who you are. And if you knew yourself as well as God knew you, you would never question how God works providence to make, make you more like Him. Last night as I was working on this sermon, my, a good friend of mine, he texted me last night and Last year, he, he got his dream job, and he, he loved it, and he would call me, and he was telling me how he was preparing for the, the interview, and he was going A to Z, and then he got the job, and, and we were rejoicing together, and, and for a year, year and a half, he said, oh, I, I, man, I just love where I'm working, I love my clients. Uh, last Thursday, he texted me his review, and his review, the, uh, the boss said, uh, you know, Steve, he's doing an incredible job. He is, he, everybody loves him. He, everybody thinks he's a great guy, great worker. 10 out of 10. Then last night he, he texts me and says, hey, uh, 
I got laid off. You know, the, uh, the revenue was down, and, and, uh, and I said, oh, man, I'm so sorry about that. I, you, know, you, you really wanted that job. And he said, yeah, it's, it's strange because I, I, I really love working here. I, I thought it was the perfect place for me. And I had to remind him, hey, you know what? As much as you think, you think that this was the best for you, even though you know yourself pretty well, guess what? The Father knows you better. And he has something better for you. He has something better for you. If God is your Father, brethren, he will take care of all of your needs. Matthew 6, 31, 32 says, Don't worry. Don't worry about these things. For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek, for your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. I know what my kids need. I know when they're hungry. You don't have to tell me they're hungry. I know. I know when they're cold. I know when they need a warm jacket to wear. I know this about my kids. How much more does our Heavenly Father know exactly what we need? But one of the highest privileges of, of adoption is the assurance that God is our Father. And Paul tells us that in verse 6. Because you are sons, verse 6, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. See, for many adopted children, the experience of being given up by their birth parents is, is traumatic. And when a parents adopt children at, at, from a certain age, many of them spend a lifetime trying to process this trauma. This is normal. They're trying to make sense of it, trying to understand their identity. Months ago, I heard a testimony of an adopted child. She's now a, a grown adult. Uh, she's a counselor with CCEF. I uh, saw her kind of testimony at the conference. And she told uh, this uh, horrible experience of, about being raised by her adoptive parents. And, and her, her birth mother was a drug addict. And at the age of six, she, she was asked by the judge who she wanted to be her parents. And it wasn't an easy decision for her because as, as bad as her birth mom was, her adoptive parents, believe it or not, were not that much better. And then later on through the years, through all the issues and the problems, uh, uh, she had a conversation with her father. She wanted to meet with her one day. And, and during the conversation, her father expressed regret of having adopted her. That he, was, uh, he thought he had made a mistake. And the conversation got so bad, it got to the point where the woman asked her dad, she said to him, Dad, do you want, do you want me to, to even call you father anymore? And her dad looked at her and said, it's up to you. It's up to you. See, we can struggle with doubts about our relationship with our father in heaven because of this disconnect, right, of our sinfulness and God's holiness and we feel in the back of our minds, maybe not articulated, but we kind of feel that maybe, maybe God regretted adopting me. I mean, maybe he's so fed up with, my, with all my issues that maybe he wants me to stop calling him father. I mean, we never doubt God as creator or judge. We never doubt that he's the king, but God is my, as my very own father? How can a holy God really be to me a loving father? Me, full of sin, full of pride. I come with him with the same issues. See, the end of chapter 3 featured our union with Christ. In verse 26 of chapter 3, Paul says that in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. In verse 27, he said, for all of you were baptized into Christ. Verse 28, uh, Paul said, for all, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Verse 29, you belong to Christ. And now in chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says that the pinnacle of our union with Christ is our adoption as God's sons. You can never be adopted as sons of God unless we were first in the Son of God. That our oneness, our in Christness, our union with Christ reaches the mountaintop in our adoption. And, and our adoption has its orbit in union with Christ. 
The sonship we receive in adoption is Christ's sonship first. Adoption happens in Christ so that the adopted have his name put upon them, that the spirit of his son is given to them. The phrase in verse 6, God sent forth the spirit of his son, parallels the phrase in verse 4, God sent forth his son. The sending of the Son made our sonship a spiritual reality. The sending of the Spirit of His Son makes our sonship an experiential reality, a practical reality. The Holy Spirit so works within us to give us the assurance that when we cry out to God in the darkest of times, we cry out to Him as our Father. Romans 8, 15, and 16 makes this a little bit clearer. Paul writes there, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Then he says this, spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. But what two words, what two words does the spirit teach us to say exactly in verse 6? The two words in verse, at the end of verse 6 are, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. And where have we heard these words before? We never saw them in the Old Testament. In the entire Old Testament, you do not have a single instance of any person addressing God as their father. You go through 150 psalms, it's Yahweh, it's Lord, it's Adonai. Never do you see the psalmist crying out to God as his father. The first time we see that address is Jesus in the Gospels. In fact, these two words, Abba, Father, they are the exact two words Jesus cried out in Mark 14 in the Garden of Gethsemane hours before the cross. He was pleading with his father to take away the cup that he was about to drink. Abba was an Aramaic term for father that little children used to address their, their dads. The term signified the most enduring tenderness and intimacy between a father and a child. Kind of like when my my three-year-old son will come back from the store with her mother. I'll be upstairs and he gets in and he just yells out, Daddy! Daddy, we're home! Daddy! And in verse 6, Paul says that the Spirit teaches you to say the same exact words Jesus used to address his Father in the darkest hour. Why these two words exactly? Why? The answer is to communicate that you have inherited the same rights as Jesus Christ. The same right that Jesus, the Son of God, had with respect to God, the Father, you and I have also. In other words, we can approach our holy God, as if we were as beautiful and heroic and faithful as Jesus himself was. The the spirit indwelling within us assures us in this experiential way that if Jesus never doubted God as as his father, then maybe we shouldn't either. In Leviticus 16 last Friday, we learned about the high priest who... Only once a year he could enter into the very presence of God's glory. And he had to have a bull offering. He had to bring a a, a ram offering for a burnt offering, a a bull for a sin offering, and then two goats for the congregation. One goat to be sacrificed, one goat that would would escape. And then he would have his own own unique clothing during the, the Day of Atonement. On regular occasions, he would be dressed like a king. The high priest would have, a, have, a, have almost a crown and jewels and gold. But on the Day of Atonement, he would take off those clothes. He would put white linen to show this humility, to show this deference. And it was all white, like, almost like a slave. And, and he could only go in once a year, once a year. And he had to be careful. And, and he would offer incense 
And the beginning of verse 16, the beginning of chapter 16, uh, reminds Aaron, who is the high priest, of what happened to his sons. Nadab and Abihu, remember Aaron? They died when they had to offer strange fire, when they offered strange fire. Be careful. When you enter once in a year, be very careful because what happened to your sons could happen to you. Once a year. And so you have the high priest, the privilege of the high priest. Of all the other people in the world, if you heard that these people could have a kind of access that the high priest would, would be shocked at. That they could go to this, they could go into the presence of the Father any time of the day, every day of the year. You, you would think, who, who could be greater than the high priest? Who could, who could do that? Who could have that kind of access to the Father a, a thousand times more than the priest? God says here, his children. His children, you can come to him anytime you want and call him Abba Father. Who are you in Christ? Verse 7. Verse 7. Therefore, you are no longer a slave. Notice the definitiveness of verse 7, the, the concrete nature. You were no longer a slave, but a son. No longer a, under the law, under sin, no longer under a tutor. No longer under the elemental things of the world, but a, a fully adopted, grown son with the same rights and privileges as the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Paul gives the last privilege of being a part of God's family. Verse 7, and if a son, then an heir. An heir. You deserve hell, but we, we, we receive a an eternal inheritance. You see, in human relationships, we inherit, inherit the wealth of our parents at the time of their passing. All that belonged to mom and dad is given to us to carry on the family legacy. And in a similar, similar way, even though by nature we had absolutely no legitimate right to claim anything from God, by grace, as adopted children, we become, we become heirs of this, of this incorruptible kingdom. Peter he described this inheritance this way in 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading having been kept in heaven for you ready to be re revealed at the last time. Paul finally adds in verse 7, we're heirs through God. It's all by grace. Not because of anything you and I have done. Not because of any of our good works. That God is the only source of our inheritance. That God is the sole author of our adoption. Sinclair Ferguson tells the story of a, of a friend who adopted a little girl and after her adoption she would not call her new father daddy you see even though she was legally adopted and, and officially a part of the family what she was in reality was still not personal it was still not a experiential reality for her until one day the little girl came into her father's office and said to him Daddy, my shoelace is broken. Can you imagine the joy of her father when he heard those words? And brothers and sisters, when we call our God our Father, he loves to hear those words. See, most of the Galatians that Paul is addressing are genuine believers. They are bonafide children of God, but what was true in reality had been lost in their personal experience. See, when you forget that God is your Father, when you stop personally experiencing Him as your Father, it's often a sign you're, you're losing your grasp on the Gospel. That was true for the Galatians. They, they had Him as, 
as, as their father, and now they wanted to go back and they wanted to have God as their judge. And, and that's kind of a, a good way to help you understand the, the health of your relationship. When you think about God, when you pray to him, is he, is he like a judge to you? Is he like a judge? You're like, oh, 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 how is he gonna, how is he gonna, what verdict, verdict is he gonna give today? Or is he a father? Where you're assured of his love. You're, you're confident. See, part of living by faith in the gospel is experiencing God as Abba, Father. And so, my prayer as we close is that God would use some of these, some of the, the, true, the truths of these verses to help us exclaim with the Apostle John in 1 John 3, 1. I like the J.B. Phillips New, Ta- New Testament translation of this verse. Consider the incredible love that the Father has shown us in allowing us to be called children of God. And that is not just what we are called what we are. Dear Heavenly Father, depending on where we are in our Bible reading, depending on what kind of sermon we're listening to, sometimes the most simple of truths can be so complicated and we forget who you are most fundamentally to us. You are everything. And oftentimes we we relate to you as creator and judge and sustainer and everything that is true except relating to you as what is most true. You are our Abba, our Father. So, Lord, we, we, we don't want to just kind of know this in our heads. We, we don't, we don't want to know this truth uh, just theoretically, like seminary students. We, we want to know this truth that you are our Abba Father like little children. Like little children who've scraped their knees, who run to their father, knowing for certain that we will be held, we will be comforted, we will be picked up, we will be loved. Lord, give us that personal knowledge that you are our Abba Father. We pray in Jesus' name.